0: Welcome to the Sustainable Nano Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Krause. On this episode, we have a cool interview with Kelly Zhang, who's a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a member of the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, which produces this podcast. Kelly recently published an article, along with a team of co-authors, about a new technique she developed for figuring out the behavior of certain molecules that coat the outside of nanoparticles. Now, you can't usually see these nanoparticle coatings using normal microscopes because they're too small. So researchers in the past have had to make some assumptions about how they look and behave. And Kelly's new technique allowed her to challenge some of those assumptions. So we'll talk about how that works and why it's relevant for sustainable nanotechnology in general. We also talk a little bit about how Kelly first got interested in chemistry as a little kid watching anime, which is a lot of fun. Uh, I apologize, the sound quality isn't great on that first section of the interview, but it does get better, so stick with us. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Kelly Jong. Well, thank you for talking to us for the Sustainable Nano podcast. Before we start talking about the science of your recent article that came out, I was hoping you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you get into chemistry?
1: Oh, okay. So I got into chemistry pretty early on. When I was little, my dad kind of showed me this cartoon. It was a Japanese cartoon talking about I'm trying to make a medicine that makes people living forever. It's like a detective story. It's called um, the American Name is Case Close. It's like a bunch of small detective story, and there are a lot of like scientific facts in there, like you know, how do you do physics, all that kind of things. And there is like a chemist female in the show who were developing all those drugs and she's like really cool and so I watched it growing up and I just thought it was cool if I can make something like that and in order to do that you have to study chemistry yeah at that time I also wanted to be a detective but my dad said it was a bad idea so um I go for the chemistry <laughs>
0: that's awesome so how, wait how old were you uh, I think I was seven that's great so what you do now does it do you, do you feel like it kind of relates to that fictional version of chemistry at all? uh
1: Not really. So I went to college and I decided, oh, I'm going to try chemistry. It's like pretty cool. And I really liked it. But then um, I went to college in Ithaca College and that kind of changed my perspective about like world a little bit. So I actually thought like, you know, making a drug that makes people living forever is a cool idea, but it's not natural. So I'm not very prone to that idea. So I, I decided to do something else that's different. And I think going to a Ph.D. program here. Doing sustainable nanotechnology is actually more helping the society, in my opinion, so.
0: Yeah. So can you say just a little bit more about how is working on sustainable nanotechnology, how does that kind of benefit society?
1: When I was in college, I learned that nanotechnology is kind of a pretty hot area. Everything wants to go nano, either it's for the benefit of lighter devices or have more quantum property. So that time I thought it was very fascinating, and then now doing the project, I think it's it's actually pretty cool because there are so many products out there in on the market, but most people just sell it or make it because they it can make a lot of money for them. But on the long term, if we really want to, you know, save the earth or you know help us maintain the resources we have, just going long term, it's really important to understand those really amazing selling product, how they're gonna affect the environment, whether it's gonna stuck up in the ocean or you know people or animals eating them. And I think it's just very important to know that what we deliver to the outer world and then our research is kind of like having that big goal, but like any grad school student would know like what you're doing is a very small contribute of the whole scientific community. So I think I'm okay with that. I think literally everyone like in the scientific community is contributing part on a very small scale, but when you all add up, we get a better understanding of how... You know, surface functionalization or core material, and you know iron release. How those properties affect the material, and then when you add up, I think it just helps us understand a little bit more what we make, and then trying to design it in a more sustainable manner based on what we discover.
0: That's great, and the fact that to be able to uh, to have the goal, career goal, from when you're seven, and then have that dream be uh, realized, and that's what you're actually doing. I think that's pretty awesome.
1: That changed along the way, but that's how I get started. Because I feel like female scientists is a really cool idea when I was little, and then I'm doing exactly what I wanted to do.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. So what would you say, what is the most new or exciting thing about this paper that you just published?
1: Well, for me, the most exciting thing is that the innovation behind the paper. So it is about using NMR to probe the dynamic morphology of the ligand layers on the nanoparticle surface. So many people often perceive NMR as a traditional technique for organic molecules, solving like the structure of those organic molecules or organic metallics. However, here we're using this like known, well-developed technique to explore a new system, which is the ligands. What they're doing and then what they look like on the nanoparticle surface which hasn't been explored much or is not often studied using NMR. And that can be very important for a lot of different studies. So for me, that's the most exciting part
0: for me. So can you say a little more about what is a ligand? Why do we have them on nanoparticles? And why is it helpful to have a new way to to look at them?
1: Yeah, sure. So there are a couple of reasons why people want to attach like a ligand on the surface like nanoparticles. Um, So in the center we study a lot of nanoparticles and then as many people know nanoparticles exhibit very fantastic properties at a very nano level. However, they're not always so stable and kept at nano level.
0: So they're too big sometimes?
1: Yeah, so by attaching things around those great nanoparticles with different molecules will allow us to stabilize those nanoparticles and help them maintain na- nano in many cases.
0: Oh, I see. So nanoparticles, they like to like clump together, and so they form bigger p- pieces that aren't nanoparticles anymore. So the ligands help kind of keep them separated from each other. Is that is that a good way to say it? Okay,
1: so um, another important reason that we want to attach ligands on nanoparticle surface is that in many different cases nanoparticle can serve as a much higher efficiency transportation platform in different systems so what that means is we can decorate the surface of the nanoparticle with different ligands and um, many different functionalization um, group and then also in all kind of different ways that you can imagine and that will basically open the door for these particles to do all kinds of different things that we want them to do. For example, for drug delivery system as an example, like medicine is a great example for um, those ligands, basically really large, big molecules for, on the nanoparticle surface. When you attach those molecules on a nanoparticle surface, that basically provide the nanoparticle kind of become the drug delivery platform, so we can attach drugs on the surface in all kind of different ways. You can put one layer, two layers, and basically those decorated nanoparticles can enter a specific part in the body and target specific receptors. And because it's a nanoscale platform, provides a much higher surface area, meaning much higher efficiency and enhanced specificity.
0: Cool. That totally makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Okay, that's great. So then what benefit does NMR, this new technique that you talk about in this paper, why is that uh, improvement over other ways that people have used to look at these nanoparticles with ligands on them?
1: So normally when people use this NMR, it's basically a very traditional analytical chemistry technique for studying like, molecular structures, conformations, and dynamics of the compounds. But also people who use NMR to do analysis are normally like organic chemists or analytical chemists. If you look into like material chemists, we don't really use NMR to analyze our material because it depends on what materials you're looking at. If you're looking at soft materials, it could be really big, like polymers, and you also often get lime broadening. And then uh, when you get lime broadening, you can't really like identify exactly like where your peaks is because they're so broad, so you can't really identify their chemical structure. And if you look at inorganic materials, you get the same issue because you have a solid surface and that will broaden your line width. So you can't really identify your chemical structure. And then it's just really hard. So there's like a disconnect between NMR and then material science. So I guess for me, in this paper, we're using NMR in a different way, not just looking at the chemical structure. We're more studying like the morphology of those ligands by looking at the relaxation of the peaks we got. So lime browning is kind of indicating that how far those ligands are from the surface. So instead we're not looking specifically at the molecular structure, but more like a morphology. So from those relaxation time we got from each broad peak, you can tell that, you know, the distance between those ligands and then the surface and then you can get a big bigger picture of what the surface looks like so it's a little different from the traditional so we're kind of like a bridge which is not very often seen in literature
0: yeah, so can you tell us in the most simple way, what is NMR, what is it, like, what does it do? What do you see when you're using it as a scientist?
1: Yeah, sure. So NMR is called nuclear magnetic resonant. It's an analytical chemistry technique for studying molecular structure, conformation, and dynamics of the compounds. So many people are more familiar to the other name of this technique, which is MRI. Because you've seen it in a hospital. So MRI stands for magnetic resonant imaging. These two terms are essentially are talking about the same technique, MRI and NMR, except MRI is an imaging version of NMR, and then becoming the preferred name around like mid-1980s, and that's why you hear that term is more than NMR for like people who don't know, don't study chemistry.
0: So when you say MRI is for imaging, so that means you basically, when you do an MRI, you get a picture, and NMR, you don't get a picture, you get like a graph, right?
1: Yeah, so NMR is a spectroscopy version of MRI, and then MRI is like an imaging version of NMR, and then those two are essentially the same, so they're both measuring pretty similar things. But I thought it was fun because the word nuclear has been dropped, when it's referring to imaging for humans or animals because there are so many concerns over the danger of nuclear energy. Right.
0: So even though there's no, there's no radiation involved in MRI or NMR, but the word nuclear kind of makes it sound more dangerous than it is. Yeah. That's really interesting, yeah. Yeah,
1: because yeah. it's radio frequency range, so.
0: Right, so there's no more, no more danger than it would be when you listen to your radio. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Great. Okay, so so that makes sense. That's how you use NMR. Most people use it for analytical meaning they're looking at the structure of different molecules, but you figured out a way to use it to look at these ligands on the surface of nanoparticles. Is that a fair summary? Mm-hmm. Yes. Cool. Okay. Great, so then another question would be, was there anything kind of surprising that you learned from doing this project, or when you set out to do it, did it, did it go kind of as you predicted?
1: Yeah, so there are two-fold to that question, For personally. Mm-hmm. When we talk about science-wise, there are actually a lot of nanoparticle-related literature, and then there are a lot of figures in those like papers showing that the functionalized nanoparticle surface Normally, the figure is like most of them showing the ligands are sitting very nicely around nanoparticle surface or tightly wrapped around nanoparticle surface if you're using a larger molecule or polymers, like what we want them to do, uh, which I found can be very misleading because if you've seen those enough, you kind of start to think, oh, that's what they're doing. So when I first started the project, the goal actually just to confirm the attachment of those ligands, but along the way, I realized there's something not, there's a piece of puzzle missing, which is like, you know, I got those data, and then it doesn't explain it. And I realized those ligands are actually not sitting on a nanoparticle surface as nice as we want it. So interesting. Yeah, so started to investigate more on those and then realize that, wow, those pictures can be very misleading. And the, the ligands are kind of just doing random things on the surface. They're not perfectly sitting on a surface like what the literature pictures normally pick, you know,
0: So it's kind of like messier than people usually talk about it. it Yeah, (laughs) so,
1: and there's another thing that's surprising to me when I'm doing the project. I think for me, start off is just like a science project, which is like, you know, you have a goal and then you want to confirm those and then you're done, right? But my goal in the beginning is very different than my goal in the end. And then the reason why that is, is as the project went on, there are actually a lot of I have to get NMR training so I had a lot of discussions with people that I worked with and then during those discussions and exchanging ideas so as the project went on I realized you know when you work with people and then you exchange ideas the direction can change and it's kind of amazing for me because for me like you know when you have a goal you just like go for it but when you work with people you have new ideas coming and then you discuss and then just like more and more ideas coming and then your project become kind of like broadened and then it's just i wouldn't exactly achieve like my goal i don't know how to describe it but it's very magical when you like work with people and then you know people talk and then it could take you to a new direction where you never thought of before and that's like not what i expected when i start a project and that's how i get to this paper so it's very surprising to me yeah
0: that's really cool. And it says something nice, I think, about the collaborative nature of science. Yeah. It's not just one scientist alone in their lab doing everything by themselves. It's it's a group yeah. effort. Yeah. That actually leads to my next question, which is there are a lot of authors on this paper. And obviously that happens a lot in science manuscripts. But how did you kind of work together as a team? You've just talked a little bit about, you know, getting new ideas from other people involved in the project. And for people who don't know, who've never written a scientific paper, how does it work when you have so many authors on one paper?
1: So it's kind of interesting. I think really, like, when you work with people, it depends on what your perspective is. And that kind of determines where your collaboration is going, because everyone you work with is not going to be the same person as you are. So everyone has their own ideas, own directions, and own personality, because those are all very interesting. Like I think, in general, it's easier if you have an open mind and, and be willing to take your criticism from other people, because, you know, most of the people working with Are gonna judge you in a certain way? Like maybe your ideas have some flaws, or you know, based on their experience, might not be what they're expected. So it's really important to like take your criticism and then not take it personally because sometimes it's really hard to take criticism. I found it's very fascinating when you work with people. Everyone has their own ideas, and you kind of like see every person has their own characters and they communicate in a specific way. And when you work together and if you set your mind, it's like, okay, I'm gonna work with them and then accepting all of those things. I mean, they're good and bad, for sure. But when you're willing to accept other people's criticism and ideas, it's kind of amazing. Because the biggest benefit for me working as a team, when you're stuck, you're not just stuck, because everyone will have their own direction. You will always find a way out, so. So all the data that in the paper is from me, but I think for a lot of the authors on my paper, they provide ideas. So when I get stuck, when I'm doing an NMR measurement and I got stuck at a point, I don't know where to proceed, and I talk to those co-authors about, like you know, okay, this is where I'm at, and then I don't know where to go. And then on the technical side, there's this one of the co-author, Charlie Fry. He's the director of our NMR facility. He will look at my data and then see what I got and then talk to me about more NMR technique. Because NMR is not just one technique. There are so many different things you can do to get your signals. So we will discuss you know, what other experiment is there and then can it be applied to your experiment and then we'll talk for hours about those possibilities and I'll go do them. And they're like Bob, my PI, as well as Joel Peterson, which is another co-author in the paper. So we'll discuss, okay, so you get the data, and then basically you can make a point, but if this point is big enough, is it important enough? What is the innovation in it? Like, they will give me more bigger picture ideas. For me, my co-author is more like providing me new ideas, new directions, and then push me towards my goal. Yeah, so that's how we work together.
0: Perfect. So, and that leads to my next question very nicely, which is, is there a new research question that has come up based on the findings that you had for this project? Like what's the next step after this?
1: Yeah, so that's actually a great question. So after the paper got published, um, I got emails from a lot of different people ask me what's next. For example, now we learned what those ligands look like. They're not nicely wrapped and they're kind of like random, has tails and loops on the surface. The next thing we want to know from a molecular level is like what controls the packing of the morphology or like a ligand on the surface. We can maybe study in the future like what kind of factors controls, you know, maybe concentrations or maybe it's from the ligands. Or like another questions that we can ask is we know that polymer functionalized nanoparticles, which is what I use in the paper, are more stable than oligomers. Is it because the of morphology of those large molecules because they're so random and then they have like the fluffy tail and then loops and that kind of prevent them getting attracted to each other? or maybe that's the reason why, and there's all kind of experiments we can do to confirm that. And then from a more broad view, because um, in the center we do a lot of like mechanistic studies of why nanoparticle cause the biological effect they cause. And then um, two factors that people are mostly concerned about is charge type, whether it's positive or negative, or ligand type, like the functional group that the ligand carries. But from this paper, Basically, it shows that there's more factors we need to take in consideration, for example, the morphology, because it can certainly affect their interaction within those complex systems. So basically, you can use a small ligand with a shorter length on the surface, or you can use a larger molecule, like a protein or polymers. So there are some preliminary studies showing that when you decorate the surface with smaller, shorter ligand, the resulting particles are not as stable compared to those particles decorated with like much larger molecules.
0: Got it. Cool. So we're I know we're running out of time a little bit, but do you have any comments in general? Our center is called Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology. So what are your thoughts about how this project contributes to that science of not only nanotechnology but sustainable nanotechnology?
1: I think from this paper that we just published, we can definitely say like we can use NMR as a, the more powerful probe to understand what those organic layers are doing on a solid interface, and by knowing that, we can go back and then redesign new particles that's more like easily controlled. Because when we talk about sustainability, I think one big important factor is you be able to control the properties, which meaning you can control the outcome, right? So basically if we can control what's on the surface, what the morphology look like, and then we're using NMR to see what those particles doing in like more complicated system, we can make this particle and we predict their behavior and then go back and redesign.
0: Yeah, that's great, wonderful. So anything else or anything I forgot to ask about that you think we should cover?
1: I think that's pretty much it.
0: <laughs> Great. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time. It was fun talking with you. Thanks, Miriam. And that's it for this episode of the Sustainable Nano Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thanks so much to Kelly Jong for doing the interview with me. Thanks, as always, to the National Science Foundation, which provides funding for the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, the producer of this podcast. As always, we have to give our disclaimer that the opinions expressed on this podcast are not necessarily those of the National Science Foundation you want more sustainable nano we'd love to have you visit our blog at sustainable-nano.com we've got hundreds of posts written mostly by graduate students in the center you can find all the rest of our podcast episodes at podcast.sustainable-nano.com you can find us on twitter and facebook at sustainable nano all one word we would love to hear from you what do you think of this episode what do you want to hear in the future get in touch so thanks again for listening and we'll have our next episode in another couple of weeks